welcome, welcome, welcome everyone. Welcome to Shadow Light. Join us as we navigate the big issues on your feed, moving from apathy and overwhelm to collective action and hopeful pathways forward. In this episode, we're talking about carceral feminism, abolition, and making ourselves ungovernable. A quick content note that there may be mention of gendered violence, including rape and other forms of sexual violence. There will be notes in the description about where to tune back in if you'd like to forward past that. And in the last episode of Shadow Light, we were talking about policing in schools, why that's so harmful, and some of the organising groups that are bringing together the voices of students, young people, teachers, school workers and local communities to establish why policing doesn't keep us safe and to establish the alternative within education. But as Marianne Carver puts it, we cannot discuss policing, prosecutions, judges or prison systems without acknowledging the prison system as a mechanism of social death and exploitation. And I'm sure we'll get into all of that later, but that means that in order to keep our community safe, that alternative has to extend beyond education to our wider society. We need the whole-scale abolition of policing. But if you have ever said that publicly or ever seen anyone say that publicly, or even, you know, among like friends, family, then you'll know that the first question is often, well, if you close prisons, what will you do with rapists and murderers? Where will you put them? Gendered violence is often the first thing that is being mentioned when abolition is raised as an alternative. And that's why I think it's important that we have this conversation about carceral feminism, how we move beyond it, how we answer these questions that we often receive. And so that's why the key question in this episode is how do we make ourselves and our communities ungovernable? Because first of all, we have to deal with you know, those, those pitfalls in our conversations, but then we also have to move beyond to what does abolition look like? Those are big questions though, and I, I definitely cannot answer them. Um, so we are joined by someone um, who can help us with that. I'm very excited to introduce Avia Day. Thank you so much for joining us, Avia. Do you want to give us a bit of an intro to who you are, what you do? Because I'm sure people would love to hear. Oh, thank you so much, Larissa, and thank you so much for having me. So yeah, I would maybe front load who I am with my organising, which is the thing that's kind of most important to me. So I've been organising for nearly 10 years now with Sisters Uncut, which is a feminist collective uh, fighting cuts of domestic violence services, as well as state violence. Um, And more recently been organising with Copwatch, particularly Hackney Copwatch. And yeah, outside of that, Birkbeck, um, the University of London is where I work, the, the institution that pays my rent, or I should say allegedly pays my rent, given the current dispute that we're in uh, as a UCU member, a member of the union, the UCU. Um, but yeah, that's a bit of an overview of who I am, what I'm doing um, with my time, and I suppose why I'm here today. Oh, thank you so much for that intro. And just a little aside, big up the UCU and, you know, you, you're going to win the dispute. We've, we've all got your back. Students are behind you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. But yeah, like, as I say, the, the key question for this is, of course, how do we make ourselves and our communities ungovernable? But before we get there, I think we need to have this conversation about carceral feminism. And, you know, I, I know that this is something that you have spoken on previously. Um, shout out to the, there is an existing knowledge page in Shadow. We'll definitely link that down below as well. Um, but can you just tell us a bit about what carceral feminism means? What does it look like? How does it manifest? That kind of thing. 
So I think it's probably um, a good idea to start by making it clear that the term carceral feminism is a critique. It's a critique about a particular branch of the feminist movement. And so um, those of us who use the term carceral feminism use it as a critique, but people who we identify as carceral feminists probably wouldn't refer to themselves with that with that term. So that's probably an important place to start and to make clear. But essentially that critique came out of, you know, in recent decades, a move by a certain section of um, the feminist movement to um, look to the state and look to the criminal justice system as solutions to gendered violence. So the part of the feminist movement that really uh, saw potential, um, maybe even liberatory potential, in investing in more policing and more prisons, so arresting more perpetrators of of rape, arresting more perpetrators of domestic violence or of trafficking, you know, they, these those kinds of feminists really thought that if we if we get the police and the criminal justice system um, to take these issues seriously and to ramp up their the, the kind of state response and contain perpetrators, then that might be part of or or the solution to gendered violence and so there's a kind of counter to that long-standing before the term castle feminism was part of that critique but the long-standing you know a big part of the kind of um, rebuttal against that came from black feminists in the 1970s who saw this you know the beginnings of this real shift in this real investment in policing and prisons and punitive responses and a lot of black feminists said this is not going to work if you're if you're um, from the black community you know that there is a long history of uh, police repression of black communities and so giving the police more power is only going to end up reverberating back onto those poor and black communities and ramping up the, the the oppression that they were already experiencing and over the last sort of few decades where we've seen carceral feminist initiatives really taking hold uh, and becoming much, much more popularised, that is what we have seen. We have seen more police repression, the use of domestic violence and sexual violence laws disproportionately against poor communities, disproportionately against black communities and communities of colour more broadly. And we've also seen that more women have been, you know, affected by these laws. So, you know, more more women have been arrested as the perpetrators of domestic violence, for instance. And we're seeing a kind of dragnet effect where, you know, the more powers the police have been given and the more powers the criminal justice system have been given, the, the more people have, you know, already marginalised people have ended up being drawn into the criminal justice system. And so that's that that critique of carceral feminism is to basically say that this is not a liberatory project. It is not likely to see gendered justice and the liberation of people from gendered injustice. Thank you so much for that. I think that gave such a helpful overview because often people might not know that history and context of where that movement came from. But do you, how do you then respond to those questions of like, 
what do you do in those because I think often when you try and embark on those conversations even just among you know friends and family it can be really difficult to then put forward an, an abolitionist critique to put forward a critique that says there is an alternative that this isn't liberation as you say that this isn't gender justice how do you navigate those conversations it's a really, really good question. And one thing I would say is that when I first started organising with Sisters Uncut, I was working as a domestic violence, um, an independent domestic violence um, advocate or IDVA. And, you know, a lot of my job was actually very criminal justice focused. And a lot of the funding for domestic violence services have pivoted massively towards supporting survivors to stay in a kind of criminal justice process with the hope of convicting more perpetrators. And that was not the only part of my job, but it was a really large part of my job. And while I was doing that job and while I, when I first started organising with Sisters Uncut, I had quite a critical like view of the police and difficult experiences of the police, but I wouldn't say that I really had fully abolitionist politics at that point. And so my politics has really changed over the last 10 years, like 10 or 15 years, uh, massively to have a a much, much, you know, more in-depth analysis of the criminal justice system and its its position and its relationship to gendered violence, which I didn't always have, even though I didn't really see, you know, most of the people that I was supporting didn't really want a criminal justice response and didn't want to go to court. They usually wanted to get housing uh, or find other kinds of ways to stop the the violence from happening. But most people that I spoke to, they didn't want to go to the criminal justice system route. And so I, I distanced myself from it, but I didn't always have an abolitionist understanding of the dangers of it, even though the police always seemed to be really difficult. But I would I would say in terms of that that kind of response, as I've as I've shifted and organized and 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 changed and, and seen things differently and read more. I would say that, you know, first of all, it's really important to understand that as things stand, most perpetrators of gendered violence are not in prison and have never come into contact with the criminal justice system. So if you think about, you know, I think it's something like 99% of all uh, sexual violence cases that the police know about that get reported to the police don't go anywhere at all that, that, you know, don't end in conviction, don't go anywhere in those terms. And so most of, you know, you can say that, you know, if you think, if you really think that most of those people taking those cases were lying and that, you know, no sexual violence took place, I don't know what to, what to say. But clearly, as far as I can say, there's a lot of sexual violence going on that is got nothing to do with the criminal justice system and those, and those perpetrators are not being held to account in that way. Um, and there's just generally a very low clear up rate of crime in general in this country. So of all the crimes that are are, are reported, only about 6% have a clear up rate from the police and end in some kind of conviction um, or sanction. And so we're already in a situation where the vast majority of um, harms that are happening in our community are not being responded to by the police and are not being responded to by the criminal justice system. So really we're talking about, if we're asking what happens to the rapist, what happens around gendered violence, uh, if it's not gonna be the police, then we're talking about a really tiny number 
that we're going to find an alternative to the criminal justice system because most of them aren't in the criminal justice system anyway. But in, in my opinion, I really feel that the best place to respond to those issues is in the community. I don't believe that disappearing the problem into prisons um, and, and out of sight, out of mind, really does, does help us. Prisons are deeply, deeply violent institutions and probably one of, if not the most sexually violent institutions in society. And so the likelihood that you're going to put someone who has perpetrated some kind of violence, whether it's gendered violence or any kind of violence, into an extremely violent institution and sexually violent institution and that they're going to come out rehabilitated seems really unlikely to me. And so for me, it's it's about um, what, what many abolitionists would call transformative justice. So getting to the root of the problem. Why is this happening in the first place? Why is gendered violence happening in the first place? And what conditions need to change around that person to mean that they're not going to be doing it? And I believe the community, when well-resourced, can be, you know, the answer to that. And whether that's having decent, safe, secure housing for uh, survivors, but also for perpetrators. So they're not tempted to come back if they're homeless and they're coming back to someone that they've previously harmed because they've got nowhere else to live. That's that's part of the solution to um, gendered violence. It's about what kind of conditions has that person uh, lived in, been brought up in, not just in terms of their family, but societally. What messages have they received around how relationships are conducted and what power means and addressing things at that root. Because, you know, I believe that people do not behave in violent ways without ever having experienced or witnessed or been exposed to violence themselves in some way or some kind of, you know, received a message that the way in which relationships are conducted is based on on power and what kind of power you can get. And so... I feel like investing really heavily in communities to unlearn those things that we all need to unlearn. We all, you know, at different points, perpetrate different levels of harm. You know, we don't all use sexual violence. We might not all use physical violence, but we all, you know, we've all been brought up in a society which is extremely violent and tells us that relationships and life in general is carried out based on power struggles and... That means that we we all at some point are going to end up harming someone if that's how we've been brought up and that's how we've understood, that's how you've got to survive in a capitalist society. So in my opinion, if we invest very heavily in communities uh, to respond to that problem, to meet the material needs, but also the emotional needs, the educational needs of both people that have been um, perpetrating violence and also those that have survived violence and those that are a bit of both, then I think that for me will massively be a bigger solution far outweighed compared to prisons and policing wow so no not a small not a small task ahead of us um because we're talking about education (laughs) justice housing justice social justice we're talking about actively transforming the entire society um and like it's essentially unthreading every piece of that fabric that the social fabric that we currently have 
where do where do we start where do we target because I think people you know we're all about moving from overwhelmed to hopeful pathways forward on on this pod and I guess it's just the question of are there some key pressure points in these systems and in these kind of in these things that we need to face um, where you'd recommend that people start what are the key targets that we could be looking towards right now that kind of thing I think that's a really really important question um, I think there's a question in terms of individuals listening like where where's the best place where's the best place to put your time and your effort and your energy and then there's a kind of broader strategic question which is going to take many more of us to to kind of answer but I think that for any like individual listening is like, well, where do where's the best place to put my energy? I think it's important to think about like where are you where are you located? Where are you spending your days? Are you living in a city like London or you know, outside London? For instance, at the moment here where I live in London, you know, um a lot of organizing a lot of abolitionist organizing is focused on policing and stop and search because you know in a really urban built up area that is you know policing is massively massively invested in and and stop and search and strategies like stop and search are you know a big part of day-to-day life especially in black communities and so if that is what is kind of happening in your area then that is something that you can get invested in, whether that's through Copwatch or other kinds of, you know, police monitoring groups. You might also live somewhere where, you know, a prison is, there's a plan to build a prison and like there's, you know, there have been, been plans to build like several mega prisons across the country. And if that's nearby you, that might be, you know, looking for a campaign around that. Um, anything that's happening locally to kind of to try and prevent that from happening might be the best place to put your energies because that's your local area, the people that you know, the the schools, maybe the churches, the mosque, whatever it is that you might know in that area can all be used. You can start to organise and, and create those links to kind of stop um, that prison from being built. Other kinds of situations, like if you're working in education, if you're a teacher or you're working in a university, you know, you might be organising around getting police out of schools. For instance, you know, I think you mentioned at the last um, the last uh, episode was talking about the, the serious issue of um, the massive increase in police in schools. Um, and so if you're a teacher or if you're a learning support assistant or working in schools more, more widely, or even if you're a student in school or college, you might want to invest your time in in a campaign to kind of get the police out of your school. Um, so there's lots of different ways of thinking about it, and it's worth doing a little bit of research and asking around, like what is you know what is going on in my area. Like, do you know of any kind of campaigns around policing or around immigration enforcement or around prisons or around police and schools or anything like that? And also just thinking about your own networks. Are you a member of a union? Could they 
Could there be, you know, a campaign that you could link in with your your trade union? Are you, you know, acquainted with like local religious institutions, whether it's a church or a mosque or a synagogue? Like, could you talk to people there and thinking about what kind of networks can you use to start building a sense of of that campaign and like what kind of connections you have with your local area that could make those links between any kind of local campaign and and the people in your in your local area? Oh, that's so many ideas. I feel like everyone listening will have something they can go out and link to or join right now. So that's super, super helpful. The one thing I would say is is often starting out in this kind of space and wanting to resist policing, wanting to resist, you know, prisons and, and this entire carceral system. Sometimes I think the pitfalls that we see people fall into at the beginnings of that journey can be between what is a reformist action and what is an abolitionist action, or it can be the thing that stops people from acting because they're worried that what they're doing is actually reinforcing the system itself. So I was just wondering if you could talk to us a bit about how do you navigate those potential pitfalls, like how do you differentiate between reformist and abolitionist actions? And I think kind of jumping off of that, what I love from, and I hope we're going to talk about the book a little bit, but what, what I love from Yours and Shanice's book, of course, Abolition Revolution, is, is the quote, if the abolition is the pre-Jinks revolution, it's the set. Um, I think that's just such a, <laughs> such a great way to put it. But I think it's, it's thinking about, yes, this is, we've got to do actions in the here and now, but it forms part of this broader story, right? And so this broader revolutionary intent So how do we then think about what's going on in the present day? Because, of course, you know, even for folks that are from Croydon, we know that just the other day, you know, there was a black woman with her child getting dragged up by the police just for the the idea that she may not have paid her fee for the bus when she, of course, did pay the fee for her bus. We all saw that going around on Twitter, on the TL. But, you know, you see things like that happening, you want to respond. How do you make sure you're responding to things happening day to day when it comes to policing, but also maintaining that broader vision of transformative justice, of the world we're seeking to create? Sorry, that was a a million questions. But I guess just, yeah, how do we differentiate between reformists, abolitionists, and keep that broader vision in mind as we're moving through this work? It's a really, really, really important and brilliant question, and I'm glad that you asked it. One thing that I think is really important to remember is like the lineage of the abolitionist movement today, which is an abolitionist movement to end policing in prisons and and criminal justice, um, criminal justice systems in the here and now. The lineage of that goes all the way back to the campaigns and movements to end uh, chattel slavery um, hundreds of years ago. And at that time, as there is now, there were people who were much more on the side of reforming slave movements rather than abolishing it. So, and some people who sort of said, well, there are sort of steps we can be taking in the meantime. Um, and some of those steps were pretty good steps. And some of them were kind of trying to make what is it was essentially uh, a horrifically unjust and violent system and trying to kind of go around the edges of it, managing it and making it slightly more comfortable. But, Ultimately, you know, the abolitionists kept their eyes on the prize. And even though there were, you know, points along the way, that was that was the ultimate goal. And I think we can really learn a lot from from that movement in trying to remember when we're thinking about 
the steps we're taking towards the abolition of police and prisons, that is making it more comfortable, isn't the ultimate end. It is the abolition, the total abolition of, of policing and prisons. And one of the things that, you know, me and Shanice were writing about in the book, our kind of overall thesis was that the abolition of police and prisons isn't by itself the end goal and ought to be seen as a one part of part of a wider revolutionary uh, struggle. And so, you know, for, for me, a part of that is kind of understanding that, especially now in the 21st century, policing, prisons, immigration control, etc., um, um, you know, all highly, highly invested in and militarized, and are a real barrier to our kind of revolutionary struggle to being able to deliberately put there to be able, you know, to stop us from being able to organize for better conditions. Um, whether it's you know police officers on picket lines or taking trade unions to court or convicting sex workers or you know, the war on drugs, you know, to being able to survive and thrive in this society, you know, whether it's evictions from, you know, um, from our, our home or from encampments, you know, these are all designed to stop us from being able to access, you know, freely land, resources um, and the things that we need to survive and thrive on our own terms. It's all on the terms of capital. And so that's the kind of broader, you know, if we think about prisons and policing as as serving a a function in being able to stop us and to control our ability to be able to get our means of survival uh, met on our terms, then we can kind of start to understand that getting rid of police and prisons is one step in the wider goal of being able to access land so that we can have housing, being able to access resources like land for food and for, you know, and being able to access like technology so that we can make things that are based on our own need, not based on the needs of capital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, hopefully that gives you a bit of an understanding, but I think, you know, the kind of question around reforms and reformist reforms, that kind of thing, I think, even though we have to keep our eyes on the prize that ultimately for me, this is a revolutionary struggle and a revolutionary goal. And then we, there's, there's kind of ways of thinking about what are the steps we are taking towards getting there? Because we're not there at this point as much as I would love us to be, but you know, there are some steps that we can be taking in the meantime or, or furthering our goals. Abolitionist futures has a really great sort of uh, diagram or table that kind of talks about, like reformist reforms and abolitionist reforms um, and kind of breaks it down and has some really like uses some really good questions so if you think about something like community policing for instance so or more more police training and asking you know does this take more resources away from the police does this you know does this step challenge the notion that police you know increase safety or does it reduce the police powers and if you look at something like more community policing then it's actually that's talking about investing more in policing getting more police officers whether or not they're like 
PCSOs or a different kind of police officer. They're still basically police. Um, more training, you know, those kinds of things or more surveillance technologies, body-worn cameras. Some people would say body-worn cameras, you know, that can be used for us to, to gain more evidence um, for our cases, but they're, they're very often used against against ordinary people and for the use of police. Police officers often turn off their body-worn cameras when they're about to do something kind of booky. And so, you know, those are, you have to ask those questions about, you know, is this going to invest more and give more money to police? Is it going to kind of shore up the power of the police? Or is, it, or is this kind of step going to dismantle some of the powers of the police and bring some more powers our way? So I think those are those are kinds of really good questions that you you can kind of be asking with any kind of new idea, whether that idea is coming from the community or that that idea is coming from the state. Aren't teasing out those kinds of questions to see whether or not this is going to shore up the power of the police or start to peel it back and bring it bring the power back towards us. Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that table, especially because I've actually got it downloaded. And I'll just, I'll share a few more of the things because I think it is super, super helpful. Shout out to abolitionist teachers. Yeah, it talks about, you know, is this step withdrawing lethal tools and tactics, stuff like tasers, pepper spray, firearms? Like, is it scrapping policing programs and infrastructure that target specific communities? Things like Prevent and the Gangs Matrix. So we were talking a lot about Prevent in the last episode too. Is it scrapping, reducing and rejecting extensions of police power? You know, the new bills that have been coming through. Is it establishing firewalls between data collected and held by services and the police? Is it repealing laws that criminalise survival, things like sex work and migration? Is it scrapping the use of pre-criminalising orders? And is it prioritising spending on community health, education and affordable housing? So, yeah, that's I think it's just so powerful to be able to look at that, use that as a, as a framework, as a template for actions um, that people might be considering picking up. And it's so exciting, as you say, to see all of these new and emerging, like, organising communities. Some of us folks in Croydon have been putting one out and we've had so many people reach out to us being like, oh, we're a new group too, let's connect, let's organise together, let's not duplicate. And it's really exciting stuff. So if you're thinking about starting something or joining something, you heard it here first. Well, not first, but you heard it here. (laughs) Definitely not first. Do it, get involved, because there is stuff out there and there are other people doing this work. Okay, well... Big Tech hates us uh, and has removed the end of the recording of this episode with Avia, which is heartbreaking because, as you heard so far, her explanations are so clear and concise and incredible and digestible. But what we're going to do is we've got Zoe in the virtual studio with us. Hey, Zoe. Hey, I'm no Avia, but I will try. I'm absolutely good. I just listened to the first half of the episode and damn, like... She is an amazing communicator of complex ideas, but we will try. We will try. So we're going to try between us to capture some of the things that are being said towards the end, have a little chat about it and make sure we round out the episode in a positive way, even though Big Tech is trying to come for our abolitionist chats today. But we're not letting letting them win. So, you know. They're silencing us. They are silencing us. But really where we went next, where we were talking about the book with Avian, the kind of story of how um, Abolition Revolution came about. 
it's just talking about the organizing work that has been done in this space because really we've seen such a huge resurgence or even growth and evolution of the abolitionist movement over the past few years uh, and in fact abolition revolution as a book uh, was being written before the resurgence of the black lives matter movement back in 2020 but we also discussed that it happened prior to uh, the 2021 case of the tragic passing of, of sarah everard in fact the murder of sarah everard and we chatted a little bit about that case the significance of it in the UK and uh, Avia gave us some context as to why it's so crucial in the UK abolitionist movement. So just to make sure that we kind of do justice to this episode, I want to talk a bit about what happened to Sarah Everard and of course um, how it's shaped this movement. So for those who might not be aware, Sarah Everard was a white woman who was during the pandemic back in uh, March 2021 stopped by a police officer who I think Avia was stressing that this police officer was emboldened by additional police powers that they were given during the pandemic. The, the police officer used those powers to stop her, to handcuff her and to put her in his car before he raped, strangled and burned her body. And of course, this is incredibly heavy. Um, and I think it sent ripples through society society in the UK. People could not believe that this had been done to this young woman. And there was, of course, a, a response from the local community who, who were shocked. Many women came together uh, to set up a vigil. That vigil was... Uh, police essentially told people that because it was during the pandemic that they should stop organising this vigil. And... Uh, those local women who had originally been planning the vigil turned around and said, okay, we're not going to do it. But Sisters Uncut, who Avia mentions earlier in the episode, the um, organisers around gendered violence, domestic violence and so on, they said, actually, no, we're not going to step down from this. We think it's really important that particularly given that it was a police officer who committed this, um, who perpetrated this, that we're not going to be stopped by the police themselves. And so they went ahead uh, and organise the vigil to mourn, to be together in that moment of deep sadness. But the violence with which that was responded to by the police, the way that those women who went to mourn were dragged up, uh, were hauled out of there, it was disgusting. I don't know if you remember seeing it, Zoe, but I remember sitting, you know, seeing the video, because I was, I was looking after my nan at that time, and so I wasn't going to protest because she was quite vulnerable because she was undergoing cancer treatment and so on. She was um, immunocompromised. I didn't want to go to protests at the time, so I was just sharing online. But I remember sitting and thinking, I cannot believe that when a police officer has perpetrated such violence, they would not see how ironic it is for them to then drag up women at the very vigil, mourning her. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 it, uh, it was... Uh, shocking isn't really the right word because I don't know we've seen how police treat protesters over and over again but what that vigil was supposed to be was it was a peaceful vigil and the images I think you know most women most women in the UK were following that case like it doesn't really matter your political background like that was just like a real shock and so most people, most women were following this case. 
and those images are so violent and we we can pop in the references down below just a, a link to some of the coverage but like trigger warning because like the, the police were really dragging these women out by like their head like it was it was really really violent and like that I mean, because it was, you know, so soon after that resurgence of Black Lives Matter, I think, like, in the darkest and most violent way, like, the puzzle pieces came together for a lot of people that were like, police are not protecting women and police are not protecting a lot of people. And it's just sad it had to get to that point for us to see it, but it was such a visual proof of what everything that Avia is saying. Um, just in such a dark, dark way. Exactly. And I think that's what Avia was explaining as well, is that, like, it was a moment of realisation for a lot of people because I think when sometimes people think about policing, they often think about, you know, particular communities, black and brown communities, poor communities, you know, certain groups of people receiving um, that sharp end of the police, right? They And there is almost, a, for some, you know... I can imagine for some white middle-class people, there may be a comfort in like, oh, you know, they're keeping us safe from them. But this happened to a white middle-class woman. And so I think a lot of people realise, you know, the more powers you give police, it's not just going to turn back on those people, it's going to turn back on us as well. So rather than it being an us and them, it was people realising that the police are against all of us. There's obviously a tough pill to, to swallow to think about why <laughs> there was a comfort before and a discomfort after. But I, I definitely agree that it was one of those moments where people began to wake up to the reality of policing as an arm of the state. It is not for you. It's not for me. It's not for the people. It's for control and it's for power and for money. And it was it was horrible. It was heartbreaking, actually. And I, I don't think the police have recovered since that really yeah and and I think what kind of the fallout from this was you know um Wayne Cousins the 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 person who who murdered um Sarah Everard the police the police officer you know what came out afterwards that you know detectives um identified that he had six incidents of indecent exposure linked to him before this and you know since then it, there's been you know huge investigations into police sexual misconduct and supposedly there are I think a thousands ish sexual allegations to be investigated against officers that have previously been swept under the rug ignored like these complaints that have been brought up by by women people who've been affected by police sexual violence that have been ignored or not followed up on or and you can just see how not it's like the police are not just there to protect the state they're there to protect themselves and I think for me and like for a lot of my friends, we when that came out, like up, you know this investigation, you and being like, what are we supposed to do? Like, you know, even you know my friends, we're we're we're, we're very critical of the police. We're very aware of police abuse, but being like, you know, you're told to run to a police officer if something happens to you. You're told to like tell these people to protect you, and they are more than culpable. They're covering up this systemic sexual violence that's happening. And I think that was, again, a, a shocking wake-up call to realise it was happening on the scale that it was. Like, we kind of we kind of knew, but to have those numbers confirmed was really shocking. And then there was this all this absolutely wild discourse that came out afterwards on how women were supposed to protect themselves, like, 
I don't know if you like MPs and politicians are coming out being like, if you're, you know, feel like you're being followed, you should run onto a bus. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, just coming out with some of the most wild advice because all of their like stock, you know, responses that they've been telling women for years, which also always puts the onus on the woman, by the way, um, that if, you know, you feel like you're being followed or blah, 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 or like you've been like assaulted or abused is like, you need to change your behaviours in order to stay safe. I was just like completely like null and void. So I think in a lot of ways for the feminist movement, wherever you were on that spectrum, it was a wake up call. And actually even people who don't identify as feminists, I think it was a real, it shook, I think it shook through society beyond just those who were already engaged in this kind of, in this kind of work. And what you're saying about like the police protecting police, I think we, we actually spoke a bit about in the, in the original recording about like, the fact that even after this had happened, after, you know, the case itself, after the horror from people, you know, seeing the response from the police to the vigil, still the state responded to this case, not by, you know, decreasing police powers, not by questioning, you know, the, the role police play in our society, society presently, but by hiring more police officers, they hired 650 more Met police officers. They trialed new police GPS surveillance technology. They provided additional funding for this scheme that, that deploys plainclothes officers into nightclubs. It's called Project Vigilant. This was the response, was to double down on the idea that we need policing when it was a police officer who perpetrated this harm. I just don't how I don't think many people you know as you say so many people feel and felt the horror of this and were heartbroken by this um and I don't think they even believe that that was the response because I don't feel like that that's had a lot of public recognition until I read the book I wasn't aware that they had hired more officers following this directly and to read that in black and white, I said to, I said to Avia, I'm very glad that it's documented actually in the book because where do we hold police accountable for these decisions? Where do we hold the state accountable for these decisions? Given that so many people in that moment were so, you know, let down for those who still believed that policing was something that could keep us safe or, you know, for those who were already aware that policing was not what keeps us safe were still equally angry. Where do any of those people go to say, hold on a minute, how is the response to violent police officers, more police officers? Like, what even is the response to that? I just, it was shocking to read. And I think a lot of people would be shocked to hear. But really, at this point, should we even be shocked? This system just continues to rebirth itself. I think I'm, I'm also just listening to you and like, I'm just hearing so much about what we talked about last episode in the in the policing the schools episode, the construction of a problem in a way that you just reproduce the existing systems in order to solve it. Like, oh, women aren't safe enough (parentheses) because of the police force. We need more police, and in that way, you can keep keep stuck in this cycle by presenting the solution as the problem as what caused the problem in the first place. Like, and I think it's so. There's so many parallels to, and even that, that what you're talking about, like the increase of like use of technology by the police as well, these invasive technologies, like it's the same thing that we were talking about in the context of schools. And like they, it's almost like it's, 
how do we reclaim that narrative? Because there's just such a, through this like crime punishment, you know, narrative, they have such control over how problems are constructed and then therefore how we, we solve them through more prisons, through more police. That's the only way to solve it. And we know that this is just making it worse. So I'm just, yeah. And I, I know that you spoke with Via about how she was writing this book at the time of this happening. And I, I wonder how those, if you if you can recall how those kind of informed each other, because like what a time to be writing a book about this. Right? Like she, she was explaining how she and Shanice have been organising around abolition for a long time and were actually approached to write this book before even the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so that happened. Uh, and of course, um, all of the ripple effects of that and, you know, some of the, I don't know how to say it without being really rude, but just like surface level things that all these organisations were coming out saying and all of these platitudes that were being written uh, about, you know, anti-racism this and that and the other and with, you know, now you look down the line and what action really has taken place from a lot of these people and organisations that were talking because it was what convenient in one moment the black squares all of that like that was happening then you see this case of Sarah Everard in the UK and Avia was explaining that like the book rather than being this introduction to abolition which is what it was initially going to be it almost became this kind of live conversation with like an evolving movement because more and more people were becoming aware of like even the word abolition, but also what it means. And, and more and more people were then identifying as abolitionists, wanting to dream up a different system, a system beyond carcerality. And so it just sounds like such a, an interesting time to have been writing. But I think you can also feel that in the book, in each thesis, kind of there is stuff that talks to very recent things, you know, everything from the case of Sarah Reed, and which is a, a name a lot of people don't know, but a black woman in the UK, um, who, and I'm trying to recall the year now, because it feels recent, but I think it was actually 2016 that she passed, but, you know, who was uh, one of the pe- many people who, who died following police custody or interaction with the police, you know, all the way through to where we are now and you know recent cases that have happened you know across the UK of either violence experienced uh, all the way through to murder or death at the hands of police and how do you even begin to hold that conversation through the through a book it's incredible how they've done it um I really would recommend it because it just felt so, I think I was saying before, it just felt so affirming to see in black and white a recognition of so many of the things that we experience and are told, oh, no, that's not what you're experiencing. Oh, no, you know, that's not what you're seeing. You're just imagining it or you're feeding into it. And actually to know that people are writing in black and white in the UK, that there is this issue how it is related to a broader global context as well we were talking about how the very basis of carceral systems today is the transatlantic slave trade and you know that entire horrific period of time in history and how it informs policing today 
and the book really does draw the link between abolition of the slave trade and abolition of policing and of prisons. And I think that is really important to give that internationalist lens, to remember that why we need to stay in live conversation with those doing abolitionist work around the world. And I just, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't do it justice because Maria just explained it so clearly and so, you know, digestibly. But I think this this book just creates those threads and those links that are so, so important between things happening here today, happening here historically, happening over the world, but linked to what's happening here. It's just, it's hard and messy and heavy, but it's also so hopeful because there are so many people around the world who believe that something else, a different world, a world beyond carceral systems is possible. And to know that the struggle that we are part of or want to be part of, if you're listening and haven't you know, been involved in abolitionist work before, to know that that work is intertwined with you know, so much else around the world is really, really powerful. But sorry, that was a long ramble to say that I can't do justice to what Avia said, but I just hope that um, we can take that spirit of internationalism and you know, imagination, even when things feel really heavy, because that I think that's really where we got to. I think, you know, that does just lead us to, if you want to, if you want to hear it in his words, buy the book, read the book, get the audio book. You know what? Don't even buy the book. Get it from your local library. Get your library cards. I want to also, because you were just sort of sharing, you know, where we can find the seeds of hope in this, which we do always try and do, even because... You know, these things are so overwhelming, structural, but the seeds of change are not just here. They've been germinating for years and years and years. And I think something that, you know, I look back on and makes me feel hopeful is that, you know, this the Sarah Everard case was happening at the context in a time in the UK when we were resisting a, a, a bill called the Police Crime Sentencing Courts Bill, where the UK government was trying to basically drastically increase police powers to crack down on protests basically really, really infringing on real basic democratic rights here, the right to protest in, in the UK, which is a really, really important part of democracy. Um, and this was happening around the same time as the Sarah Everard vigil. And, and that was the kind of context of, of the police being much more violent. And what we saw in the UK is, I, I remember we went, it was in, um, by Westminster, there was a, you know, emergency rally called to, to protest the, the police crime and sentencing courts bill to not get it through and what I saw there was just like some of the like solidarity and practice of movements that I don't think had been speaking to each other well before this as someone who'd been in the climate justice movement and I was at this space hearing Sisters Uncut, Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion working in tandem, arms around each other, united in us protecting our democratic right to protest and building those networks, building that solidarity like calling everybody in their networks to come down in solidarity with each other. And I just thought, like, when we talk about policing, it brings us all together because it's su- it's such a big threat to our movements, all of our movements, and it just shows how we're fighting for the same things, which sometimes I think when we're working on, like, the minutiae of things, we, 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 don't, we don't see, but when it comes to things like that, it does bring us all together. And, like, I just remember thinking, like, wow, I haven't seen anything like this 
and like, I don't know, there, there's these seeds, these seeds that are bringing us together. And I think that really speaks to also how much more popular and mainstream the term abolition is. Obviously, you know, that does lead to concerns that it gets depoliticized. But I do not think it's a bad thing that the word abolition is is more the public lexicon and that it's it's an idea that is being it, it's in the mainstream now. And that gives me so much hope as well. Absolutely agree. And I think as you're speaking about like what brings us together and what we're struggling against, I think we're also talking about like the fact that what we're fighting for, abolition is not just about ending prisons and policing. It's about, you know, making sure that people have quality housing. It's about making sure that we've got great education. It's about making sure that people have access to healthcare. It's about all of the things that we want in this world. And that is where we find hope. There are so many resources as well that um, Avia shared about where we can find hope. My brain has not quite captured them. I'm really sorry. I know that she mentioned um, reading Ruth Wilson Gilmore, but there are a number of other resources. So I'm going to drop an email, make sure that we can get those in the description um, if you want further like places to go to learn more. Because it would just be amazing to um, have those seeds of hope physically in the description too so we'll make sure we get those for you and I think that might bring us towards the end of the re-recorded end of our episode god bless us god bless us we did it we didn't do it on a via level but we did it thank you so much to Zoe for joining us for this re-record honestly because if I was on my own just speaking at you Nobody wants that. Literally, nobody wants that. I want it. I want it. But it's easier to bounce off someone else. So I was like, I'll come in and ask the questions. And also, I had so many questions after listening to that first half. I was like, oh, my God, so many thoughts. So many thoughts. Um, But I think we just have to reiterate, you got to read the book. You got to read the book. Yeah, honestly. Abolition Revolution, people. So if you like this episode, give us a little like. Give us a little comment on twitter on insta on any of the socials um, at shadow.mag if you have any questions comments anything you want us to ask on video anything you want to ask us anything we missed out you know thoughts feelings reflections all of the things um hit us up on our email it's shadowlights what is it? podcast at gmail.com. It's shadowlightpodcast at gmail.com. It's what Zoe said. And yeah, we always love to hear from ya. And that's the end of our episode. Thank you so much. Next episode, we are going to be taking a little bit of a light uh, discussion. We're going to be talking about dating and technology. Is big tech ruining our dating lives? We all have dating app fatigue. What's going on? Why can't we talk to each other in person anymore? What does this mean? Why is everybody super unhinged? Why are men super unhinged? And I will say, warning, this is a pretty heterosexual episode because we're doing some complaining. We are doing some complaining. But yeah, we also um, would love to hear your terrible dating stories. So please do send those in as well. But honestly, I love that episode. It's like me to hear it. Thank you so much.